This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. Let's go in our Bibles to John chapter 2. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there's a black hardback one in the rack in front of you. If you don't have a Bible that you like reading at home, take that one home and start reading it. Open to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 2. This part of the Christian life that you live in this world is basically an ongoing answer to the question of who is your God? And there are really only two options for answers. Either your God is the living God, the true God, the God of the Bible, the one who is incarnated in Jesus Christ, or your God is something less than that. And people choose lesser gods all the time. In fact, really outside of the mind-renewing gift of the Holy Spirit, we will always tend toward lesser gods because they are easier. And when I say lesser gods, I don't mean just other religious deities that people worship in the world. I mean whatever it is that we give our worship to. Whatever it is that we center ourselves around, whatever system that we invent to try to help us make sense of the world, and it's easier to make up a God who says something simple like, be mostly nice, be a little generous, don't do anything horribly wrong, and if you do that, I'll be satisfied and I'll give you a good life. I mean, do you see how appealing that kind of a system is. If we could just have a God who doesn't ask for too much from us, we'd be pretty confident that we're on the right side, the good side. Sounds like good religion. But it's horrible Christianity, and it doesn't save. That's not what God says. Our God says, if you want to find true life, you have to first give up your life. The way he actually says it is you, if you want to find life, you have to be willing to lose your life. Then you'll find it. Then you're saved. So the Christian question isn't, are you good enough? The Christian question is, have you given not just enough of yourself, but have you given all of yourself up. If you've given everything of yourself up, that's the Christian question. The reason I start there this morning is because the, the episode in the life of Jesus that we are reading about this morning, those are the kinds of questions, that's the question that, he's, that it's asking of us in this passage. Is your God the true God or is he something less than that? And this passage asks, have you given yourself fully to Jesus? And you can't ask two bigger questions than that. Is your God the true God? Have you given yourself fully to Jesus? So what we're going to do is we're just going to let them, let those questions shape our time. And then we're going to let John's gospel help us in answering them. So if you're a writer downer, those are your questions. Is the true God the God that you're coming to? And you'll know that 
If you're not coming to him on your terms, but his terms, if you're worshiping the living God, he has to set the terms. You can't. It doesn't work like that. And then the second question is, how are you expecting Jesus to save you? Save you the way that you want to be saved or save you the way that he knows you need to be saved? So in John chapter 2, let's dive in. We're going to start at verse 12. We're going to read in a couple of chunks this morning and we'll work through it together. So John 2, starting in verse 12, put your eyes there and follow along. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who are selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So I want to stop here because we have a decision to make. If you go back up to verse 12, where we started, it says, after this, he went down to Capernaum. After what? And that's pretty straightforward. The answer to that is pretty straightforward. After the wedding at Cana. So just prior to this, Jesus, the disciples he had at this point, he'd not yet gathered all of them who who came to be known as the 12, but he was there with some disciples and his mother, and they attended a wedding in a town called Cana, and at the wedding, a problem of hospitality arose. The guests of the wedding were not going to be served properly, so Jesus performs a miracle. And John calls it a a sign. And not to give too much away right now, but remember that Jesus has just done a sign. In fact, John calls it his first sign. Not just any sign, he does several. His first sign. And it's a fitting time for John to tell us about his first sign because the the beginning of the gospel of John mirrors God's work in creation. If you read the creation account at the beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis, there were seven days of creation. And John, at the beginning of his gospel, gives us seven days to introduce us to Jesus, who he said is the very word of God, who everything was made through, who was at not only present in creation, but active in creation, doing the work of creation. He's the very word of God made flesh. And so on the seventh day in Genesis, God rested from his work. On the seventh day in the gospel of John, Jesus does his first sign. So in in Genesis, on the seventh day, God rests from his work of the first creation, On the seventh day in John, Jesus does his first work in bringing about the renewal of creation and bringing about and restoring God's kingdom, the creation. And the sign that Jesus chooses to do as his first sign was taking the water 
out of the purification vessels, an outward sign of purifying the body. And from that, he made wine to serve the guests as a way of saying that you used to purify yourselves on the outside, but now I've come to purify yourselves in, I've come to purify you in a new way, in a way that you truly need. So that's what verse 12 is looking back at. After this, that's the this, they went to Capernaum and they stayed there a few days. Now here's the decision we need to make as we read 2 getting into verse 13. It says that it was time for the Passover and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So far, so good. Easy there. Because we don't know the time of year that the wedding took place, This could be right after this. But then it says that Jesus went to the temple and he began disrupting the business of the people selling sacrificial animals and collecting temple taxes. Like I just said, this is early in John's gospel, right at the beginning, just after his introduction. And we know that Jesus did this in all four gospels. In Matthew Mark and Luke, the first three gospels in the canonical order, which are much more similar to one another, here's the difference. Jesus does this very near the end of that gospel, of those gospels. Now, John is usually quite different. He tells different events. He tells them from different perspectives. He highlights different things. But if you know the church calendar, what happens in the other three gospels is Jesus enters Jerusalem. We call it triumphal entry. We celebrate that on Palm Sunday, which is the Sunday before Easter in our calendar. And then he goes to the temple and he does this same thing in Matthew, in Mark, and in Luke. But again, here in John, he puts that early. So we have to ask, as we study this, Did Jesus do this twice? Does he do it toward the end after the triumphal entry? Or has John inserted it here at the beginning of his gospel for some other reason? I'm going to tell you what I think. I think this happened just one time. And John is telling us about it earlier in his work for at least one really good reason, and, this, and the reason is this is where signs come into play. So I told you, remember that Jesus did his first sign at Cana. Uh, John is a really clever writer. I think, I think it's fair to say he's more artistic than the other gospel writers. Every gospel has its own flair, its own kind of personal flavor. John is an artist. He's a wordsmith. He's a craftsman with his words. And that's why I think what John is doing is he's taking some artistic license, license that you can see people take all the time. Autobiographers and biographers do this all the time. They insert things from their life. They'll say, well, this connects to a a different point in his life, so I'm going to tell you about it right here. And that's not to say that it's not true. It's not to say that it didn't happen. I think what John is simply doing is saying there's something that happened later, but I want to tell you about it here because I want to make a connection for you that's very important, especially as I finish introducing you to Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the very word of God made flesh. So regardless of where it happens in the timeline, John wants it here thematically. And here's what I want, I I think why he does this. Here's what he wants us, here's what he's showing us through this. 
Uh, So at the end of this magisterial introduction to Jesus, connecting Jesus to God's original work of creation, the beginning of time to the beginning of a new creation, a new kingdom of God that has been inaugurated with the coming of Jesus Christ. John wants to put together the first sign that shows us that Jesus is here to do a new work. And then he wants to show us the last sign that will forever settle any doubt that Jesus can take away your sin He can pay for it, and he can give you unending life with God. So he's going to take the first sign that announces the coming of the new kingdom, and then he's going to give you the last sign that forever settles any doubt about who Christ is and what life in him must be. And the key to that is seeing in verse 18. We read up to 17, now let's pick it up in 18. So John 2, verse 18, follow along here. The Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build the temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus has spoken. John 2.11 says that the first sign was at the wedding of Cana. Verse 18 is going to point us forward to the last sign that Jesus will do. The last sign that Jesus would ever do is to die and to come back to life three days later. What's the sign? The sign is my death and my resurrection. If you are holding out on Jesus... If you're looking for something from him where you're saying, you have to do a little bit more for me before I will believe in you, before I'll trust you, before I'll follow you, hear what John is saying. You've already received the final sign. Don't miss it. Don't think there's something else or something more. Really what he's saying is don't miss Jesus. If you're looking for something else, you might miss him entirely because he's already given you everything he needs to do to show you that he's God, that he can pay for your sin, that he can take it away, and that he can give you life in God forever. He's already done all of that. He's already shown you all of that. Don't miss it. Don't miss him The crowd around him, the the religious leaders, they miss it. He tells them exactly what's going to happen. And they go, it's taking a long time to build this temple. How are you going to build it in three days? They don't get it. The disciples, though, remember later and they go, this is what he was talking, this is what we saw. We saw this. This is what we're being shown. And for them, the scriptures are unlocked. Everything's opened by this, by seeing this sign. Be with the disciples. Don't miss the clear sign that Jesus has given. And that's why I started with this question. Who's your God? Is God in his image for you? Or have you tried to craft him in yours, a different image? The disciples were open to God. As God revealed himself to be, the the temple leaders couldn't see it. It's clear in their reaction. I mean, let's just look at a couple of other things here. 
So John tells us this takes place during the Passover celebration. Uh, At this point in history, archaeologists tell us that Israel had a population probably about 2 million people. Estimates vary widely in how many people would come to Jerusalem for Passover. Some say as few as 10% of the population. Some say as much as 50% of the people were making this trip annually. But even on the low end, let's just take 10%. A population of 2 million, 10% of that is 200,000 people gathering in Jerusalem, which is easily over 10 times the normal population of the city. Chicago has a population of 2.7 million people. Imagine the city with 27 million people in it. That's the degree, the factor, 10 times. So many people were there. Now, if it's 50%, you've got a million people in, a, in a, what, it, what we would consider today kind of a, a town. So no matter the exact number, Jerusalem is packed. And then you have to understand what's happening at the temple. Uh, in order to get in the good graces of the people, Herod, uh, Herod was a ruler. He had a Jewish background, but he was appointed by Rome to rule the region. Rome begins occupying uh, Israel and especially Jerusalem in the 60s B.C., and in order to get into the good graces of the people, Herod begins expanding the temple. There were two temples in Israel. The first one was built by Solomon. It was destroyed by the Babylonians. The second one is built under Ezra and Zerubbabel, if you know your Old Testament, when they begin coming back from, when the people begin coming back from exile, it was much smaller, much less elaborate, much less ornate. And that temple was still standing at this time, but Herod begins expanding the temple. So he adds to the square footage. He adds to the temple courts. He adds walls. He he adds a bunch of things in order to say, hey, I'm a pretty good guy. Like, we're ruling you, but I'm a pretty good guy. And so that's what they mean when they say it's taken 46 years. They've said Herod has undertook a 46-year construction project for expansion. And he did it for times like the Passover so Jerusalem could be full of people and they could conduct their worship. And so this isn't a coincidental time for Jesus to do this. Passover was the most holy celebration. It was the time that they looked back to God's goodness and saw his faithfulness. But instead, the problem is it's become big business. And people are being extorted. They're being told, you know, God won't be pleased. Your sins won't be forgiven unless you give money. Unless they buy an animal sacrifice right there in the temple court and then they go in and make the sacrifice. And then it's later where his disciples remember something that's written in Psalm 69. That's what's quoted here, Psalm 69. Uh, What we have in the Gospel of John is just the first half of Psalm 69.9. But often when you see in the New Testament a section of the Old Testament quoted, especially a psalm, what you have is the wider context in mind. A lot of times if they reference a psalm, they're really kind of referencing the whole thing. They're saying, read the whole psalm and you'll get it. And when you go back and you read Psalm 69, which was written by King David, you'll see that it's clearly prophetic. It's written by David. It's even written in the first person. But it's clearly not written about David. So you hear David, what you really hear David saying is he's pointing to a time when he is king, 
will be replaced by a better king. A, a, a more holy king will come. And David is saying, he'll do more than I can do. He'll do more than even than I'm capable of doing. And the disciples pick up on this through this event. And then they're pointing us to what Jesus was doing in the second half of Psalm 69.9. So if you read Psalm 69.9, you'll hear the first half that we've already read. For zeal for your house has consumed me. The second half, which we're clearly meant to see, is and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. The reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. In other words, the sins of those who sin against you have fallen on me. That's not David talking. That's not David who bears our reproaches and our sin. That's Jesus. And we see, if you read the Old Testament, you'll see that David wanted to build a temple for God. Because the way he thought about it, if if the one true God was going to be with them, then he would need a, a place to inhabit among them on earth. And so David was planning a temple, but it wasn't built in his lifetime. His son Solomon built the temple. And at first, it was a place to worship God. But then it became, in the lives of the people, just too much. It wasn't God's presence that they sought. That could be found, certainly, yes, at the temple, and that was a central point for them. But God has always been able to be seen and worshipped and connected with anywhere. It became for them so much of a central point that they believed they couldn't effectively worship God without it. And in that, something happened in the lives and in the worship of the people. They went from worshiping the true God wherever they were to only thinking that he was pleased when they went to a particular spot and did a particular set of things. And so a system grew and it expanded and it moved farther away from the kind of worship that God said pleased him to something really that was less than that, that could be managed by the people. You see, if the instructions are, I will be pleased everywhere in all of your lives, that is hard. You have to give yourself entirely to that kind of worship. But if you can just say, well, I'm actually pleased by going to this one place on a few days a year and doing a few things that you can sort of buy and barter for and trade with, and I'm pleased by that, that's more manageable. There's a lot less than that. And so by the time Jesus gets there, the temple would have been almost unrecognizable to the humble, faithful, penitent worship that unites God to his people. That's the kind of worship that God has always said he desires and is pleasing to him. Instead, worship was transactional, had become transactional for the people. Come here, buy something, do something, and then go home and go on about your lives. And Jesus drives that out because it's not what God wants. It's not how we worship God. It's not what he's ever wanted. Listen to later in Psalm 69, which I think to the disciples when they made this connection, reading this later, I think they would have read the whole psalm. Down in verse 30 of 69, we were reading verse 9, here's verse 30. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull. 
You've heard oxes and bulls, right? We just heard about, get them out of here. With horns or hooves. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. Not buy something and kill it. Be revived in your heart. Come to me with an open heart, says the Lord. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. So who's your God? How does he say he is worshipped? Is he something you've crafted? Is he kind of the way that you want him to be so that you can control your worship of him? Does somebody give something to a few times a year thinking that will placate him or appease him and you can go back to living your life kind of the way and on your terms the majority of the time? If that's the way that you think about God, if that's your version of worship, then you need Jesus to drive that out of you too. He's the only one who can do it. You need Jesus to drive that out of you too. God is praised with lives of worship. Not holy days, holidays, that's where we get holidays. Not holidays here and there. God is pleased with lives of worship. He's magnified, it says in Psalm 69, by people who are humble and thankful and earnestly seek him, whose hearts are begging for more of his fullness. He's not worshipped by an ox or a bull. The other thing that's beautiful about Psalm 69 is the last verse I read. The Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people. Folks, it's easy to think that we don't have anything to bring to the Lord that he wants. We think, well, I don't have money or status. I don't have anything that the world finds impressive. But as David thinks about worship, even as David plans a temple, he realizes that's not who God is. God is one who hears the needy. He doesn't despise his people. In other words, he doesn't look around and say, this is it? That, that's all you've brought? That's, that's all you have for me? God loves when people come honestly and humbly. He, he's not impressed by you bringing a lot. He's, in, he's impressed and he, he takes joy when you bring yourself. When, when, when we come to God humbly and honestly and openly, he says, then I will give you a new heart. Then I will give you a new life. And I'll do that by trading my life for yours. I'll pay for your sins. Not because you've brought me something I think is great, but because you've brought me your life. You've given it over to me, and in doing so, I'll take it and make it something you never thought even it could be. Jesus does this at Passover. That's not an accident. The people are there to remember when God spared them because they asked for his protection. Every year they made a Passover sacrifice. John has already told us, if you go back to John 1, you'll, you'll read it two times. Jesus is the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. 
The lamb was what they killed at Passover to spread its blood on the doorpost so the angel of death would pass over their homes before they left slavery in Egypt. And so every year they were looking back to that. Really the seminal event of God's kindness to them. And the disciples are now looking back at this saying, this was at Passover. Death can pass over us because God did not allow it to pass over him. Jesus became the lamb. He allowed himself to be slaughtered so that the sins of the world might be passed over. Your sins are passed over. They're still paid for. But it's the lamb who takes them away. Jesus. So who's your God? And that brings us to the answer of our second question. How do you expect Jesus to save you? Do you expect him to do it your way or his? Let me just read these last few verses in John 2, and and, and I'll explain. So John 2, 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs, just one more time, I want to keep highlighting that, that he was doing. So there's a lot of signs in John. First sign, last sign, and right now John's going to say they believed in him because of the signs, but, but John's going to say the disciples believed differently and they're who we should look to. But Jesus, on his part, verse 24, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. John says Jesus did signs that he chose not to record, and some of them he must be referring to here. So John says at the end of the gospel, there's all kinds of things that Jesus did. In fact, he says, I suppose if all of them were recorded, the the world would not be enough to hold all the books that it would take to write them all down. What he's saying right now is that people were excited about Jesus at this time because of the signs. But Jesus is saying, and John's kind of explaining to us later, Jesus knows that that's not real. He's not going to fully reveal himself to these people because they're not interested in being saved by him the way he needs to save them. They're interested in the signs, the hype, the power. They're not interested in the way that salvation truly comes. The sacrifice, the shame, the defeat, the death. That's what it means when he says he knows what's in man. Jesus knows why he's popular. He's popular at various points during his earthly ministry. And it's not because there's so many people ready to lose their lives for him. It's because they think they can follow him to worldly greatness. But church, that's not how we're saved. It's not even what we get when we, when we are saved. We don't follow Jesus to greatness power or influence or worldly blessing, we follow him to self-denial. We follow him to the end of ourselves. We follow him all the way into death. And in that, we're given life. This is what happens when you're saved by Jesus. And if you're not saved by Jesus right now, None of this is going to make sense to you. None of, I, I recognize that none of what I'm saying is going to make sense. Even what we're doing right now here together 
doesn't make sense unless you're saved by Jesus. Why would we even come and do this? Because there's nothing powerful about this. There's nothing popular about this. But if you're in him, if you've said, take everything that I am, take my life, it's yours, then you found true life. And so to come into this room, to open his word, to gather together with brothers and sisters, there's nothing sweeter to you. There's nothing more precious to you. There's nothing greater. And so if you haven't done that yet, you have to give up your life to him this morning. You have to do it right now. And if you have done it, you have to celebrate that he led you to do that. One of the great truths in life is you can't have more of it by holding on to it more tightly. You can only have more of life by letting go of your control over it. We can either hear Jesus and follow him, or we can watch him try to drive out of us our need to worship on our own terms probably not understanding at all what is happening, like the crowd that's gathered there. Some people saw this, and most of the people who saw this, you know what they saw? They saw a crazy man. What is this man doing? A few of them, though, the disciples, hopefully a few others, saw this. They didn't see somebody who's crazy. They said, this is our true king. He's come to liberate us. He's come to set us free from this system. He's come to set us free from the bondage of sin. He's come to set us free to truly worship God. And so following Jesus has to to start with self-denial. He saves us when we can finally admit that we were never going to be able to save ourselves. He doesn't forgive sin when we go to the right place or buy the right thing. He forgives it, all of it. He can forgive all your sin when we humbly go to him. It's it's telling that this happens in the temple. Because like the old one, this second temple, it would also be destroyed. Actually, not that long after Jesus died and was raised again. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Not even 40 years from when we're talking about right now. But that doesn't mean that God's people are without a temple. The rest of the New Testament teaches that when the Holy Spirit comes and a person becomes a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes into you and you become a temple for God. You. And so where do you now worship God? Where Where do Christians worship God? In your heart, in your spirit, in your body, and wherever you are. Because you've been cleansed. Jesus didn't just cleanse the temple. Jesus, if you're a Christian, comes into you and drives out everything that would be false about worship. Drives out for you everything that would be second secondary, drives out everything that would be less than him, and he makes you a temple for his glory. He pushes all those things out. Your desire, my desire to be my own God. And he teaches us to worship rightly and fully. 
And so if you're struggling with worship, you just wonder, how do I worship God every day? What, I, I'm not even sure I understand, Pastor, what you're talking about. Ask God to teach you how to worship rightly and fully. Ask God, if, if necessary, to drive out those things that are in you that would war against that. If you're a Christian, Jesus is right there. He's with you. And you are a temple to and for him. And so may God drive out of us what is false. And may he cleanse us to be living temples for his glory. And may he do that on his terms and not ours. May we give ourselves completely to him. That when we go to him humbly, he is pleased. Knowing that what we bring is our very lives. And what he returns to us is life everlasting. Let's pray. Lord, would you in us be pleased to revive and restore and renew our hearts continually as temples of the Holy Spirit may be be worship centers, white, hot, burning for your glory. And may it be for others around us that as we worship, they too would come to see you. If it's other Christians, may they be encouraged in it. Lord, we also pray that if there are those in our midst who we are close to that do not worship you, may our worship have a similar effect, driving out what in, is in them that would be less than you. For to worship you is the only way to truly live. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words, building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.